The massive industry behind mental health in the United States is largely corrupt, and it's leading to unscientific methods for treating depression and anxiety that then lead to poor outcomes, especially in children. Explaining this corruption today and providing us with better solutions is Dr. Roger McFillan, clinical psychologist and co-host of the podcast, Radically Genuine. This is part two of our two-part conversation. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout. That's GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. Which question do I ask first? I have about 10 that I've had circulating in my head. Okay, what do they mean? Let's ask this question first. What do people mean when they say chemical imbalance? When they've said that, well, you just have a chemical imbalance. There's, it has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with the factors in your life, which is kind of like a trend culturally that we see because you shouldn't feel bad for anything. You shouldn't have to be inconvenient. You shouldn't have to sacrifice or do work that you don't want to do. So we're told it's a chemical imbalance. That's hmm. the reason. What is even meant by that? Well, again, we're, we're going back to 70s yeah. where there was a theory that if depression could be related to low levels of serotonin, for one. Yeah. And there's other neurochemicals like norepinephrine, um, dopamine. And these are chemicals that are associated with mood, but it's much more complex than that. Um, in fact, most of our chemicals are originated in our gut. Gut health is so critically important. But there was a, a review paper that was published... Dr. Joanna Moncrief, she's out of the UK, was published in 2022. And we've known for decades, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance, mm. but the commercials would be placed on like Zoloft yeah. may create a chemical imbalance in the brain and can correct that. They just published the studies. I say, listen, there's no differences in serotonin for someone who, who is severely depressed, moderately depressed, or happy. In fact, it's so complicated. So Ali, like our chemical, chemicals in our brain are, are, are so complex, we don't really even understand it. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to try to create some bioreductionist simplified idea that our thoughts or our emotions are related to one chemical. In fact, if, if we found ways to measure serotonin and it was after you did a run in the morning uh, in in beautiful weather and bright sun and after you meditated or you prayed and you did some gratitude work, then the chemicals in your brain or areas of your brain are going to light up differently, right? Yeah. And if if I had you think about or, or watch news or think about something that was war or destructive, that might have some different changes in your, in your brain. Does that to say that you're outside of your control or you're biologically vulnerable to experiencing that? No, it doesn't say that. It's a complex experience. But what happens is when you sell that to the American public, when anyone's struggling at any one given time, they can then internalize it as I'm broke. There is something wrong with me. And that's why I can't do these things. Mm -hmm. And that idea is toxic. Yeah. That idea is, is so toxic in, for your mental health and to be able to respond to the adversity that life is going to bring because there's no doubt, you know, there's going to be pain, there's going to be struggle. And so that's why it's so nefarious because it changes the way that people yeah. experience their own emotions. Yeah. And, you know, I'm wondering also how our education system kind of plays a part in all of this and just like the need for conformity. When I was growing up, 90s and 2000s, it was like there was this um, burst of ADD. 
or ADHD. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to like lead us down that path, although I'm sure there's a lot of similarities there. And because I always was talking in class, which is not really a surprise. That's why I made a career out of it because I've always liked it. I had a hard time paying attention to what the teacher was saying. I felt like, okay, got it, understood it. I'm going to go talk to my friends. And I was told, or my parents were told, probably kindergarten through fourth grade, she's got ADD. She's got ADD. Put her on ADD medication. Mm. Thankfully, my parents never did. And I turned out fine. And I actually made good grades and all that stuff. And now I just, you know, have a job doing what I was always not supposed to be doing in class growing up. But I had friends who did go on ADD medication who actually weren't really precocious like me, but they weren't doing that well in school. And so the teachers would say, oh, she's not doing well because she can't pay attention because she has ADD. And I remember in high school, friends who had ADD medication or who took it, we would joke, oh, she took her medicine today. So she's not going to like laugh at your jokes. She's not going to be chatty with you. She's not going to want to like talk to you. It was kind of like a joke that we all told each other that we knew that if that person took their ADD medication that day, they would be numb. They would be antisocial. And I just imagine that is multiplied today. And with just how normal and mainstream it's become, not just ADD medicine, but depression, anxiety medicine for all these teenagers, it's become so normalized. Yeah, you don't want to take me down that road because... uh, (laughs) We could be here for a a long time. All right, first sponsor for the day is Adele Natural Cosmetics. You know them, you love them. If you have not started using skincare from Adele Natural Cosmetics, you have to. I made the switch a few years ago. I use their facial cleanser. I use their moisturizer. I use their toner. I use this stuff every day because I really believe in it. They use all holistic, totally natural, handmade ingredients, products, um, all made in the USA. And it really works. It cleanses my skin, but it also makes my skin, I think, brighter, less irritated, softer, more moisturized, all things that I need. They don't have the typical chemicals that are advertised as anti-aging, but that's just because they use totally natural ingredients. They use God's medicine cabinet to moisturize your skin, and that's really what any kind of aging or irritated skin needs. Also, this is a company um, run by people who love Jesus, and they are outspoken Christians, pro-life advocates. I love supporting them. Go to AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Use promo code Allie for 25% off your first order. AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com, code Allie for 25% off your first order. AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com, code Allie. I was in the schools probably uh, when when you were going to school in the early 2000s. I did transition eventually into a school counselor before I got my my doctorate while I was getting my doctorate. And so I saw this transition. You know, it also, there's constant stimuli in modern day living. So our computers, our tablets, our television, our video games. So you take kids who have these developing brains who are looking to be what is most fascinating or interesting, right? Especially boys who are just constructed to be more active and move around. And then you stick them in a, this constrained environment around uh, school that 
is really boring to them and not interesting. Not for everybody, right? But some some boys and some girls, they're meant to work construction or they're yeah. meant to be in media. They're not meant to sit there and be a passive learner in a classroom. So we create a disorder around it, mm. which is what we've done with the Diagnostic Statistical Manual in Psychiatry. Mm. There are now over 500 psychiatric disorders. Wow. I mean, we can diagnose you with something at any given time yeah. if we wanted to. Yeah. Um, but we act like they're real. We act like they're discrete, identifiable, scientific diagnoses that have legitimacy. And people don't understand the history of all this. It's really just constructs. There are just a number of various symptoms. Uh, and if you meet this criteria, if you meet that criteria, then we can give you this diagnosis or label, and then we can sell you a drug. And it's very connected to the allopathic kind of medical model that is really funded and, and pushed by the pharmaceutical companies. The one thing that you find in these trials with the pharmaceutical companies, because people ask these questions, well, how does it get to this point? Can this guy be, is this guy really for real on some of the things that he's saying? Well, this stuff's out there. This stuff is published. There's books written about it. How the pharmaceutical companies would hire academics to ghostwrite their papers. So, People, I don't know if people understand that the pharmaceutical companies are the ones who control their trials. And then they'll hire outside academics from some of the most elite institutions in the United States, Harvard and Duke and so forth. And they'll have those academics be first authors on the paper. They weren't even involved in the study, but they'll put their name and then they'll... They'll be hired by the pharmaceutical companies as thought leaders. And then these thought leaders then write the books, the tech bo textbooks <laughs> and the continuing medical education uh, uh, units that are required for, for doctors. They're going to go to their conferences and these thought leaders are going to talk about this brand new drug that we have to be able to treat depression. And mental illnesses are similar to diabetes and drugs are going to be insulin for diabetes, a bunch of nonsense that just have brought us to a prescription drug culture and created so much harm. Yeah. The thing that is so important for me to communicate when I'm speaking publicly is informed consent is a legal and ethical imperative. If your doctor isn't informed, then you can't consent. So you have to ask, what are the alternatives? What are the adverse reactions? How is this going to be monitored? What is the plan to get off this drug? All these things that are just not asked, we just get that prescription, go home and we take it. Mm -hmm. And people will take these drugs for extended period of time. And I think we're, we're taking episodic conditions, emotional conditions that come and go in episodes and we're making them chronic. We're, we're creating an environment where if you look at the disability statistics, the change that has occurred from the mid nineties to those who are now disabled due to mental illness is such an astronomical rise. So we're creating a, a whole culture of, of disabled individuals from their own mental health that I often start with a very treatable and understandable condition. I read your book on, on the plane. I loved it by the way, but I originally, when I was in my doctoral program, I was studying and I published in the, in the field of eating disorders. And so that's been a part of my clinical practice. And I noticed, uh, I believe, I'm gonna ask you questions about this, but when you were struggling with your eating disorder, you had this awareness that there was a lot of emotions that you were experiencing mm -hmm. that were just being 
covered up with yeah. your eating disorder or alcohol or partying in your very vulnerable age at that time. You know, you could almost sense the vulnerability. There was a breakup that occurred and you had this idea of how you wanted your life to be and you struggled with that transition and that uncertainty. Yeah. And you just wanted to feel better. Yeah. And you can feel better if you get attention and you can feel better if you're drinking and you're partying and if, if these guys are into you and then you're part of kind of that culture where if I can look a certain way or I can present a certain way, that is going to provide me with a, a sense of wholeness mm -hmm. and joy. Mm -hmm. And your awareness of that led you to make changes in your life. Mm -hmm. it, it was a clarification of values mm -hmm. and you decided to take steps that I think we're probably transformative. And so if we viewed our own mental health struggles as transformative instead of an illness, then mm. there's opportunity. Am mm. I accurate in the way that I was kind of reading that? Yeah, I think that's a great analysis. Of course, I've never heard it summarized exactly like that. But as you're talking about taking normal human emotions and struggles and kind of medicalizing them and making them chronic. I'm, I'm thinking back to the counselor that I went to who couldn't have prescribed anything because that wasn't her capacity. But I'm very thankful that that's not actually something that she recommend, uh, recommended. Actually, she told me a very difficult truth about bulimia, which is what I was doing, is that it's going to kill you. That's what she said. It's going to kill you. You're 23 or 22 years old and you're going to die from this. Is that what you want? And I know that's not what wakes everyone up but that certainly did wake me up. And I'm, I'm thankful. Wow, I never thought about that, that that could have turned into like this lifelong medical treatment that I underwent for something that was really because of both internal and external factors that I just wasn't dealing with correctly. Yeah, and if you'd follow the guidelines, and that's how our medical, at least in the primary care setting and psychiatric setting, there's these developed guidelines and it's almost like they follow these rules. So if you would have went into a, another setting, the guideline would have said, okay, we're gonna combine cognitive behavioral therapy with Prozac for the treatment of bulimia. Mm. And I think you ended up going to a, a counselor um, that was aligned with your faith and some of, of what was your personal values? And that person from a different perspective knew who you were, understood who you were, and helped you on a process to be able to deal with what you were experiencing. And that's so different than, than, than placing a label on top of you or saying that yeah. this drug is going to help you. Okay, let me tell y'all about Naturally It's Clean. I love these products. They really work and they're safer for my family because they don't have any fake fragrances or the nasty chemicals that you get in your standard cleaning products. They use all plant enzymes. It's all made in the US too and it's really effective. I use the multi-surface cleaner, the stain remover, but I especially love the carpet cleaner. I mean, they get those serious stains out of your carpet and it takes just a few minutes. I'm really, really impressed by that. I would not be telling you that if it weren't true. And if you follow me on Instagram, I've posted pictures of all the spills that we have on our on our carpet like every week and how naturally it's clean really does get them out. And you can just feel good knowing that it's safer for your pets and your kids. Go to naturallyitsclean.com slash Allie. You can get an additional 15% off for a limited time by using my link. You'll see my essentials kit, the things that I really like and use. Naturallyitsclean.com slash Allie. Naturallyitsclean.com slash Allie. You said something about the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I thought was especially interesting. And as a parent, of course, I'm super concerned about that. I saw 
the dangers of just listening to these experts at somewhere like the AAP during COVID when it came to universal masking, how they would contradict like the their own findings from several years ago about things like that, seeing faces. But then you said that they are kind of bought and, and paid for by these pharmaceutical companies. And it reminded me of a story that I saw not too long ago that suggested that maybe treating obesity in young people, which you mentioned is a big problem, well, they should be injected with a drug. And gosh, you know, as I mentioned, like there's so much culturally behind this, behind the whole movement to destigmatize everything, including things that are actually unhealthy that can be fixed without medicine that I think is a part of this. Of course, it's money. Of course, it's corruption. Of course, it's politics. But it's also just like a shift in how we think about life and struggle and identity and sacrifice. And that really worries me for the next generation. It worries me too. And I don't know how we kind of decondition a, a generation of people. So yeah. even on on social media, and I I decided that I had to say something. I had to do something. I need to sleep at night. I'm part of this system. A lot of the negative feedback that I get is this idea that I am stigmatizing mental illness. And that's so problematic because what I what I want to do is create environments where people can thrive. And to do that, it takes an entire shift from how we're actually thinking about what's happening to us. And I don't know if people realize that this is sold to us. It's sold to us in uh, kind of like a, a story with step by step by step that um, destigmatization means that what you're experiencing, you have no responsibility around. Mm, mm -hmm. And that relieves guilt and that relieves shame. So if, you've, if you act a certain way that harms somebody or hurts somebody, we should feel guilty. We should feel shame. Those aversive emotions hopefully would be something we'd want to avoid in the future. Mm. We've become so emotionally illiterate yeah. to not think about the full range of human emotions that exist and that they're there for a reason and that they're there to serve us. So you, you just see this, people who are, are who feel like they haven't been able to accomplish the things they wanted to in life, who feel like they're on the outskirts of society, which I have empathy for, who might be struggling to be able to find love in their life or career or purpose. They can, they, they, they can attach to this idea that there's something wrong with them, that there's something broken with them medically. And then they have a mental illness. And in that idea, they can, they can search out some, you know, medical solution that kind of justifies, you know, why they haven't been able to experience the things that they want to in life or the way that they compare themselves to others. This word mental illness is, is loaded, of course, because when we say mental illness, what does that mean to us? Does that mean somebody who is homeless because they're struggling with some sort of psychotic condition? Or what about the, you know, the 14 year old that has social anxiety and doesn't want to give a speech in class? When we lump them all together, I believe that's problematic. And we use one word, and that's the limitations of our language. We use one word to describe all people. And so that makes this conversation difficult because what's going to happen is say, well, Dr. McFillin, what about someone with schizophrenia? What if someone with a psychotic condition? And then I, I tell them, well, that's a portion, that's a small portion of people who are labeled with mental illness, a small portion of people who are taking psychiatric drugs. But even there, the drugs themselves um, 
they're not as effective as they're communicated to the general public. They are short-term stabilization for some, and they couldn't be helpful. But the longer you start taking these drugs, they're implicated in metabolic illness and a number of problems. So it's not like we've advanced the conversation. We've advanced the science to be able to treat mental illness. In fact, if you look at the outcome data, everything has worsened. Mm. Something that I think it's just emblematic of all of the problems that you're talking about is this rise in gender confusion. I don't even think, I mean, you would know better just medically than I would that I could even call it gender dysphoria because I think it's gen it might be gender confusion or gender deceit. Maybe some of the people in this group have gender dysphoria. I'm not sure that we can label all of the people in that way. Um, but it's, you know, confusion is being medicalized and there's a lot of money behind the treatments, so-called, that come with this and the pharmaceutical companies and all of that. I mean, what's your take on that as a psychologist? This is a relatively new area of mine that I've yeah. gotten into. I've just recently met with groups of parents of gender dysphoric teens. And so I agree with you with this idea of gender dysphoria as a as a as a label as a term is complicated because it's new to society and there is a social contagion effect that certainly mm -hmm. exists so um vulnerable teens and we're seeing this rise it's called sudden um onset gender dysphoria yeah. or rapid onset gender yeah. dysphoria i think lisa Littman mm -hmm. is a researcher mm -hmm. who's been able to identify that is that we assume that at puberty, that when someone struggles with their own body or their emotional health, something that we've normalized in the past, especially for young women, yeah. uh, hating your bodies isn't anything new. Yeah. Um, because there is such a, a transition that occurs from in, in puberty, 20% body fat changes and so forth. Um, and, and traditionally girls during puberty have put them at great risk vulnerably to boys whose hormones are going crazy. Yeah. And so this idea that there's body dysmorphia or dysphoria of your own body is normal. But the idea that if somebody, a, a child could come to us and tell us that uh, I think I'm of another gender because I hate my body and that we would have to affirm that as if it's real is the problem that exists in my field. Because this is where ideology overtakes science. And if you are a clinical psychologist and you have a, a, an ethical code and that ethical code is about understanding things like child development and first do no harm, affirming that condition as if it's true and it's real can do indelible harm and we're seeing it do indelible yeah. harm because it's pushing young people into believing there is a potentially um, permanent medical condition that they developmentally cannot consent for or even begin to understand. And that is going to be, that's going to solve the sadness or the depression or the emotional struggles that they are experiencing. That idea in itself is harmful. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that, um, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that once you start putting things out there uh, on social media and on YouTube, that it spreads like wildfire. We saw this in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s around anorexia and bulimia. We had these 
models on major television networks and covers, and they were clearly underweight. And this was establishing a new ideal body image, which is nearly impossible for any woman to be able to obtain unless you became very, very sick. So we saw this pro-Anna uh, website and all this push, and mm. then you saw an increase in prevalence rate of anorexia. It's not that different with what we're seeing now with gender dysphoria. Yeah. In some environments, it's, it's reinforced. It's praised. I was talking to you about, uh, you know, my children before we started this, and my middle daughter went to a an art school, and in that art school, um, there was probably disproportionate amount of transgender teens that were identifying at that time, and teachers had a difficult time because one day they'd come in presenting one way, and the next day that they're presenting a different way, and it, I think it was part of the artistic makeup of those individuals during adolescence and they were certainly looking for connection and an identity and a purpose and so this is so problematic in our culture and it takes mental health professionals like clinical psychologists to be able to identify the complexity of this to be able to support parents and teens to not make a decision that is going to affect them the rest of their life and so yeah. that's kind of the stance that I'm I've been taking right now uh, as a clinical psychologist, we have a code of ethics. And in that code of ethics is that there is self-determinism, that everyone has a right to live the life and that they choose. So you're often walking a very thin line as a mental health professional under that code of ethics. But we also have a duty to, to warn. We have a duty to be up to date on the science, to inform parents about what is what is cultural or influential and what is scientific. And you try to give people the best information that they can to make the, their decisions yeah. for their own health care. All right, ladies, Father's Day is coming up. You need to get your baby daddy some steak from Good Ranchers. Your husband, that is. That's the kind of language that we use on this Decent Christian podcast. You need to get your husband some meat from Good Ranchers. If you have not done that yet, you need to do so. You need to go ahead and subscribe. I promise it'll make your life easier. We eat Good Ranchers meat every night at our home. We love the pre-marinated chicken, the non-pre-marinated chicken. They've got fajita chicken. They've got like Italian seasoned chicken, but they also have all different cuts of steak. They've got ground beef that of course is really versatile. It's all from U.S. farms and ranches. So you don't have to worry about picking out meat at the grocery store. They make it really easy for you. Plus they have seafood, lots and lots of variety. This is a great company. It's run by people who are Christians, conservatives, have the same values that you and I do. Subscribe, get that box of meat on dry ice to your front door every month. I promise you will not regret it. Plus, like I said, it makes a great Father's Day gift. So go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout for $30 off your order. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. What role, because you mentioned when you put some like something, an idea, any idea online, it can spread like wildfire. In the 90s and early 2000s, we had TV, we had advertisements, but obviously ideas spread even more quickly today when they can go viral on TikTok, et cetera. What role do you think social media and just addiction to technology uh, plays when it comes to not just gender confusion, but when it comes to all of these mental health issues that we are seeing rise so much among young people? It's powerful, um, absolutely powerful. 
we started to see a significant rise in self-injury and suicidal behavior around 2007. And -hmm. it's been on this really kind of continued incline. And in 2007 is really when smartphones became part of the day-to-day for most young people. When I look into the data around this, girls tend to be more vulnerable. And I think that's the relational component of, of females. And there are, obviously there are gender differences that exist between males and females when, we're, when we just look at biology. Females are more relational. And so when you are going to be going on social media and connecting with your friends and you're going to be scrolling on Instagram there's that social comparison component of this that drives emptiness. And you used to go to school, and if you had a problem with one of your friends, you know, it could stay there. There's respite. You could go home and not have to deal with it till the next day or the weekend. And, you know, with kids, a lot of this stuff kind of blows over, you know, by the next day. But not in the social media connected world of adolescence, is that you're dealing with it all the time. And the more that your face is in that screen, the more disconnected you are from actual reality. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing, I think, is just an entire generation who has created this alternative world that only exists in social media. And that's that brand, that brand development that maybe you were speaking to before, is that teens aren't really growing up or young people aren't really growing up knowing necessarily what's normal they're actually being so influenced by those images and those messages that are being bombarded. And so if you can go on YouTube and you can find someone identifying as autistic or that they're a part of this marginalized group or they have this mental illness, you can say, yeah, that's me. We used to, we used to have this joke about, um, about the DSM when we were learning about it in graduate school is that you can point out all the different disorders. Yeah, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. Now imagine the untrained, the child who's like going on social media and then there's actual like TikToks or other things that's saying my ADHD or my anxiety or my PTSD. And now they're identifying with these labels and then they're communicating it to their parents or they're communicating it to their doctors. I story that I always tell is I remember I had one precocious uh, 14-year-old that I was working with who was just chuckling at me how she went to her psychiatrist and and played that she had OCD. Mm. So she went to her psychiatrist and she just wanted to act out OCD. And that psychiatrist took that seriously. That psychiatrist prescribed a drug. Wow. A drug that wasn't approved for her age range based on the symptoms that this young girl told this doctor. And that is what our mental health system has become. Yeah. You know how you determine if someone's gender dysphoric? They said so. You know how you can determine if a teen is, is depressed in a primary care clinic? Well, they told you they were. Yeah. And that's not, that's not science. It's not science. That's not how I was trained as a, as a psychologist. Yeah. I was trained to take time and understand all the factors that would lead somebody to experience what they're experiencing. Even talk to family members or involve family and try to get a a bigger picture, the culture, the context of the individual. Mm -hmm. Not in today's fast food world of healthcare. Let me give you a diagnosis. Let me recommend this drug. Let me send you to this doctor. Yeah. I think we see the consequences of it. 
Yeah. One of those consequences, I'm sure you saw this too, of young people, like you said, mostly young girls, like developing tics, like TikTok tics yes, that they've this. picked up on, whether it, it like kind of mimics Tourette's or OCD or something like that. And they then do kind of develop some kind of mental illness that's not really Tourette's or really OCD, but they can't stop doing the behavior that they've watched over and over again on TikTok. Like we hear just like the destigmatization movement, I think is an overgeneralization and swung too far in one direction has harm. And so does the so-called representation matters movement. Okay, yes, in some ways that can be healthy. It swings too far and you're not really representing things anymore. You're actually teaching people to behave a certain way or whatever it is. I think young people are especially vulnerable to that. So suggestible. Yes, right? um, so and, malleable. And, and they're, they're just open to that suggestion. And that's why it's so important that we vet the adults that are in our kids' lives. Yeah. You were talking about your concerns with school. I mean, I, I have a, a fairly consistent problem with the way public schools are now communicating to our to our kids about a number of different subjects. And when it comes to like mental health, I had a, a teenager who went and spoke to a school psychologist and that school psychologist said, maybe you should go talk to a doctor about a mood stabilizer. You know, it's almost like ingrained right away that, that they overstep. They overstep their training. They, they overstep um, their influence into our kids' lives. There's not enough respect for the family. And that's so critically important that we maintain parental authority in our homes and in our school systems that these, these teachers and these school counselors and psychologists understand there needs to be boundaries between what you're sharing and what you're communicating with my child, that we in our home, our values, what we want to teach our kids is of the utmost importance. And you don't violate that. I want you to teach them math. I want you to teach them science. These things are important. But once you start getting into the emotional health of my own, uh, my own family and my own children, then we should have, I believe we should have uh, issues with that as parents. All right, Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. So as you are making the transition from the companies that hate you to the companies that actually align with your values, go ahead and switch to Patriot Mobile. They make switching really, really easy. Plus, if you go to patriotmobile.com slash Allie, you can get free activation. You've got the same coverage as the big wireless providers, but without all of the terrible values, you don't have to worry about them sending your money to causes politicians that you don't agree with. Instead, they're supporting veterans, first responders, Second Amendment, the sanctity of life. And so you can feel good about where your money is going. Go to patriotmobile.com slash Allie. You can also call 878-PATRIOT. They've got special discounts too for veterans and first responders. But with my link, you'll get that free activation. So go to patriotmobile.com slash Allie, patriotmobile.com slash Allie. I'm just so very, I'm thankful for people like you who are willing to stand up and talk about these things and to be different because as reasoned and as balanced and as scientific as you are, the irony is that someone who goes outside the bounds of what the pharmaceutical companies say is typically called like a kook. Or if you question any of the establishment narrative, you're anti-science. And there is some risk that comes with that, which is I'm sure why 
more people don't speak up. But where can people find you? They can find you on Twitter. You're Radically Genuine Podcast, right? Yeah, at Dr. McFillin on Twitter. And I also am going to be starting over the next couple of months, our entire website at drmcfillin.com is going to be revamped. Um, I'm going to have to do a lot of writing. Yeah. Um, because I think we need resources mm -hmm. for parents to be able to use in medical settings and when they're going to see a mental health professional or bring into school where there's actual science and then there's questions that they should ask because informed consent is absolutely important. There's a lot of stuff in this field that are going to be said as if it's some scientific legitimacy and it's not and you're right i i it, it's funny that i've put so much work into the science and then when i actually draw conclusions from what the science is i'm i'm on the extreme yeah but the person who never did that work and just is um kind of Repeating. absorbing the messaging yeah. then they somehow have the moral high ground here but parents need the families need and individuals, they do require resources. And I think that's my calling now is to start writing. I've done so much work on the research end and I've done so much work consulting with professionals globally. I wanna put this down in an organized fashion. So watch out for drmcfillin.com mm -hmm. over the next, about a month or two away from launching this Radically Genuine Podcast. Please check us out because I do think that is the opportunity to have these nuanced discussions with professionals and hopefully we can speak in a, in a way that is balanced and fair and respects your individual rights to make the choices for your health and to be able to challenge the medical authority. We've been blind trust has been given to the medical authority. We've seen this throughout COVID and the recommendations that have been made. And I think it's awakening. So I do believe this has to be a movement. Also check out uh, Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. I am interested in creating a center that... Um, focuses on all the integrated aspects of health. So there, there, are, there are therapies that are active and goal-focused and skill-based and respectful and they're culturally competent and so forth, where uh, they need to trust, parents need to trust and, uh, and individuals need to trust that they're gonna go in to speak to somebody who is not gonna be pushing an agenda on them, but only cares about them creating a life of purpose and value as they define it. Yeah. And we have to, we have to change our relationship to food. We have to develop emotional literacy. We're gonna have to have protocols to help people get off a lot of these psychiatric drugs, because it's really important that once you're on one, that you understand that that's very dangerous to abruptly stop a psychiatric drug. And so there needs to be research around tapering these drugs. And I'm trying to find professionals who are willing to collaborate in that so people can safely get off the the drugs and there's other things that are important around meditation and yoga and other things to focus the mind and a lot of things that are important for our overall health and well-being and so i think centers should be more focused on that than the the drug and therapy model yeah well thank you so much dr mcphill and i really appreciate you taking the time to come on thanks for having me mm -hmm.